You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1,884th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 23rd of June 2022. The editor of this edition is Claire Meller, the producer is Sue Aitchison and your readers are Christian Jenner and Neil Keeley. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. We start with headlines. Death of baby S still remains a mystery. A newborn baby girl found at a Suffolk recycling centre in May 2020 died from a brain injury, but experts were unable to confirm how the trauma took place an inquest has heard. Blighted town estates been forgotten, say residents. Tributes to nursing pioneer who helped found hospice. Tributes have been paid to a pioneering and inspirational nurse who helped found St Nicholas Hospice Care. June Shield, who died aged 89, played a key role in setting up the hospice, having been one of the first prescribing palliative care nurses in the area. She campaigned for inpatient hospice beds for patients with complex systems, symptoms, which led to the foundation of the hospice where she worked for 12 years. Her granddaughter, Dr Josephine Fizakli, who works in A&E in Norwich, said... She was very determined, very loving, and had difficult times in her life. She cared a lot about other people's pain and was very independent. She was a single mum with three young kids and worked full-time. She was very strong and quite vulnerable at times. Born in County Durham, June trained as an orthopaedic nurse in Wakefield and moved to Bury St Edmunds for her first husband Tony's work. After time as a West Suffolk Hospital staff nurse, she later trained as a district nurse, where she found her passion for ensuring good end-of-life care for patients in their homes. June, surnamed Story at the time, trained as a specialist Macmillan nurse at the Royal Marsden in London and worked on the Terence Higgins wards during the early days of the AIDS epidemic. She became St Nicholas Hospice Care's first community nurse sister and started on the 1st of May 1984. She worked with Shirley Walker and Eunice Joseph to provide end-of-life care. Shirley said June liaised with GPs to help develop the service. She was excellent at her job, said Shirley. If you had any problems, she was very knowledgeable and understanding. June was part of the Territorial Army as a nursing officer and obtained the Territorial Decoration and rank of Major. She had a lot of skills regarding discipline and how to speak to people, Shirley added. Eunice, who worked with June until 1991, said, It was her vision to get things moving that started the service. She was a great lady. It was exciting. The beginning of something new, but equally there were some hard knocks. At the start, we had to change attitudes. We were nurses, we were women, and there were doctors who obviously always thought they were the kingpins of the team. We came along and said, we've got something to add to that. Are you willing to listen? It was difficult to start with, but we got there. June, later of Hengrave, was one of the first people in the country to be awarded the Cancer Relief Macmillan Fund's Henry Garnet Medal for Long Service. Following her retirement, she had many happy times with her second husband, Donald, attended Culford Church Group and was involved with the Berry Society, the English Speaking Union and the University of the Third Age. When she joined a memoirs group, she wrote, The theme of my story is love and be loved. 
even if it means by taking risks we encounter pain. The pain is part of loving and living and will ease as we grow within ourselves during our lifespan. She also leaves daughter Jane, son John and daughter-in-law Jane. Her son Chris died in 2001. Her funeral was recently held at the West Suffolk Crematorium and donations will go to St Nicholas Hospice Care. The family thanked those who helped June to stay at home in her final days. Worried residents are hoping to form an action group to clean up what they have dubbed the Forgotten Estate. On Monday, around a dozen residents met at Bridge Community Church in Queen's Road to discuss problems at the Priors Estate in Bury St Edmunds. The residents listed issues including general littering, parking issues, overgrown vegetation, a lack of road sweeping, bins and fly tipping. According to Pauline Thomas, who has lived on the estate for 54 years, many residents feel they have been forgotten. The former teaching assistant said, It has been getting worse for some time, but the turning point for me came when I found 140 nitrous oxide bottles just lying about. The meeting was also supported by Town, District and County Councillor Robert Everett, who advised the group to set up a residence action group. It was also attended by representatives from Havebury Housing Partnership, which owns and runs the majority of properties on Broxby Walk, which runs through the centre of the estate. PCSOs Joe Whiting and Mark Ellis were also in attendance, as well as representatives including Senior Minister David Oakley from Bridge Community Church, which is keen to help out by providing space for meetings. Councillor Everett said after the meeting that he was already in the process of taking residents' concerns to the authorities, but did not feel the estate had been forgotten. Several authorities cover the estate and surrounding area and I am already taking forward some of the concerns, he said. Pryor's estate did have an active residence association but it closed down around four years ago for various reasons. Every area has its problems and a residence association or action group would help and I am happy to support this. A Suffolk police spokesman said police were also taking action in relation to any anti-social behaviour, ASB, on the estate. Residents said cars being set alight had been a recent problem, as well as fly-tipping. The police spokesman said, We are aware of anti-social behaviour on the Priors estate, and we are closely monitoring the situation with regular patrols of the area. Officers have also conducted an ASB leaflet drop to ensure residents understand that police are aware of the issue. A log of the instance has been created and is being kept updated. We are also assisting in supporting the creation of a residence association to address the problems. We are working closely with related partners on the issue, including outreach workers who attend the location on a regular basis to ensure that we are engaging effectively with young people in the community. It is important to recognise that tackling such issues is a collective effort as many organisations can play a key role and provide a suitable resolution. We fully appreciate the distress ASB is having on residents there and they should rest assured that, where necessary, robust action will be taken when we need to. Scheme to bridge access gap. A new revolutionary style bridge with lifts is to be installed at Stowmarket Railway Station to improve accessibility. Greater Anglia says the steel bridge will be the first of its kind in the UK and will see the existing concrete footbridge at the station demolished. Stowmarket Railway Station was given funding in 2019 for accessibility improvements as part of the government's Access for All scheme. Marek Dueko, Greater Anglia's Asset Programme Manager, said 
we are delighted to be able to progress this improvement scheme to help people access the station more easily. The modular steel design is cheaper and quicker to build and lifts will be incorporated into the bridge's design to make it easier to move between the platforms. Construction is expected to start towards the end of next year. Mr Dueco added, thanks to this revolutionary new style of bridge, the scheme was affordable and we have been able to use the access for all funding efficiently and to the best outcome for passengers. Issues need to be ironed out over a school's proposal to close part of a town street twice a day, a residence group has said. St Edmunds Catholic Primary School in Westgate Street in Bury St Edmunds is seeking to make a short section of the road pedestrian only for a limited period in the morning and the afternoon during term time only. Last week, the school's executive head teacher, Maria Kemble, sent letters to parents and local residents about the proposal, which aims to reduce the amount of traffic in the street to make it safer to cycle, scoot or walk to school, as well as improve the air and environment and reduce inconsiderate parking. The School Streets Initiative had already been introduced successfully in parts of London and Cambridge, said Mrs Kemble in the letter to parents. She said the closure would mean vehicles, except residents and for emergency and disabled access, would not be able to drive along Westgate Street from the junction of College Street to Guildhall Street and would not be able to turn into Westgate Street from Whiting Street from 8.15 to 9 o'clock in the morning and 3 to 3.45 in the afternoon. Any vehicles that need to move would have to do so at walking pace. Temporary barriers would be used to close the road each day and it would be supervised by school staff or volunteers. Vivian Gainsborough Foote, chairman of the Churchgate Area Association, said there was complete concern from residents over the proposal and added, At the moment we just think there are too many practical difficulties, although we are absolutely in favour of looking after the children's lungs. Mrs Kemble stressed that residents would continue to be able to access relevant roads during the closure. But Mrs Gainsborough Foote said that concerns remained over how this would operate, adding slow-moving vehicles would add to the pollution. However, Mrs Kemble said fewer cars generally should alleviate the amount of pollution overall and will also reduce idling from parents who park and leave engines running while they get out. Libby Ranzetta, co-founder of the Bury St Edmunds Rickshaw Charity, said she definitely supported the plans. We realise there are a few operational difficulties, but we would love to see it work. We think it would be excellent for cycling in the town. Suffolk County Council was approached for comment. Here are two stories about the MP Matt Hancock. The first one is about him fighting for dyslexia screening for children. MP Matt Hancock's dyslexia campaign has been back in Parliament as he pushes for universal dyslexia screening for children. The former Health Secretary, who is himself dyslexic, introduced his private member's bill, the Dyslexia Screening and Teacher Training Bill, on the 22nd of June as part of his campaign for all children to be screened for dyslexia at primary school. He is also calling for better neurodiversity training for teachers so they can more effectively teach children with dyslexia, as well as other neurodiverse conditions like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and dyspraxia. The West Suffolk MP Mr Hancock said, Astonishingly, still only one in five dyslexic children get identified at school. I know from my own personal experience that if you're diagnosed with dyslexia late, then you don't get the support that you need. Without their dyslexia being spotted and supported, many children will not only fail to reach their potential, but they'll fail to leave school with the qualifications they deserve. Mr Hancock was diagnosed aged 18 and it was only then that he got the support that he needed. 
He said, I was re-taught how to read and write, and it was transformative. But too many children are being failed by the system and leave school not having had that support. We need to make sure that happens. Without early identification and the teacher training to help all children learn, we are allowing dyslexic children to fall behind. He added, my diagnosis was a light bulb moment for me. All of a sudden, years of frustration at school made sense. The other story is that he will attempt to reach the summit of Mont Blanc in the Alps next month to raise money for a new children's hospital planned for Cambridge. He said East Anglia remains the only part of England that doesn't have a dedicated hospital for children, so there's a pressing need for a new hospital to serve the region. Five men <clears throat> have been arrested on suspicion of the murder of a Mildenhall man who died five years after he was left permanently brain damaged in an attack by a gang of football hooligans. Cambridge United fan Simon Dobbin was left needing 24-hour care and, and unable to walk or talk after the 90-second attack following a match in Southend on March 21, 2015. He died in his sleep, aged 48, on October 21, 2020. Essex police began treating his death as murder after medical tests showed a direct link between his death and the injuries he suffered. Five men aged 30, 34, 39, 45 and 27 were arrested on Friday morning at addresses across South Essex. They were later released under investigation. An Essex police spokesman said a number of people were being treated as witnesses and were also interviewed. Detective Superintendent Stephen Jennings of the Kent and Essex Serious Crime Directorate is leading the investigation into Simon's death. He said, Investigations into Simon's death showed a direct causal link to the injuries he sustained in Southend on the day he was attacked in March 2015. As a result of those findings, we began treating Simon's death as a homicide and a new investigation was launched. Simon's wife, Nicole, and their daughter, Emily, have been kept updated on our progress every step of the way. Simon was a completely innocent party in the disorder that took place that day, and his family have been through an unimaginable time. The injuries Simon sustained that day did not just change his life, they also changed the lives of Nicole and Emily. As a team, we will do everything we possibly can to secure justice for Nicole, Emily and Simon's wider family and friends. About 24 people attacked Simon and his friends following a match between Cambridge and Southend United. He spent a year in hospital and rehabilitation before returning home to Mildenhall. Twelve men were jailed for violent disorder offences with sentences ranging from 16 months to five years and another man received a suspended sentence. Now we have two stories about young people's sporting achievements. The County Upper Basketball Academy production line shows no sign of letting up this year with the news that Niccolò del Maestro has earned himself an American basketball scholarship. Del Maestro is the first and only male player heading stateside this summer, yet overall he is the 45th player under coach Darren Johnson's watch to have made such a move. The 19-year-old, who until recently lived in Bury St Edmunds, has accepted an invitation from Graceland College in Lamoni, Iowa for the 2022-23 season. The Yellow Jackets play in the Heart of America Conference and are coached by Taylor Langley, who has just finished his first year at the helm. Del Maestro said, I feel very grateful and ecstatic about receiving the scholarship and the opportunity to go and play in the States, as it has always been my childhood dream. Now with rugby, Samir Carbouche boards a plane for southern France this weekend, chasing a World Cup spot for Algeria, but he goes full of gratitude for the Berry St Edmunds RUFC family who have kept his personal dream alive. 
for as one of the few non-professional players in the North African side squad, he has had to take three weeks unpaid leave from his day job as pastoral coordinator at Berry's County Upper School. It was last summer when the Wolfpack Centre got a shock, first call-up to the country of his parents' birth after his talents were noticed on the Seven circuit with former Berry Chief Terry Sands' samurai team. An injury while playing for the Green King IPA Haberden Club cruelly denied the 28-year-old, now Berry-based player, the chance to attend the training camp last November. But the England Sevens capped player did finally get to pull on the Algeria shirt in March in a test match against Ivory Coast in France. Such was his impact in training, as well as that comfortable victory, he was told immediately afterwards he would receive a call-up to the Rugby Africa Cup tournament. Now we're going to read some letters, and my first is written by the editor of Barry Free Press, Barry Peters. I recall back in the late 70s when the village path in my Fenland village was resurfaced. It was quite an event. Freshly laid tarmac, smoother than you can imagine, was a magnet for all the long-haired and shouty rally chopper riders from far and wide. We were used to dirt tracks, but this was Thatcher's modern Britain. Sadly, what was an event for me back then is now all too common a sight. Ugly plastic barriers, mobile traffic lights and delays, and then it seemingly starts all over again. Walk around the centre of any of our towns, the medieval grid in Bury St Edmunds is a good starting point, and I challenge you to find a path which does not have a hazard for a person with disabilities. Is it down to 2022 footfall figures? Is it down to a different mix of whatever the road and pavement specialists use? Is it down to poor workmanship? Whatever the problem and the repair totals uncovered by us on page four, paint a pretty shoddy picture. It needs a remedy, especially in these financially challenged times. Brent Govel Street in Bury, for example, saw 83 pavement repairs <clears throat> in a four-year period. Answers on a postcard for where we could spend all the thousands of pounds we save. This letter is from four councillors, Diane Hind, Pat Hanlon, David Smith and Cliff Waterman. The proposal to allow housing benefit to be used as income for a mortgage shows just how out of touch the Prime Minister and Conservatives are with reality. The problem for most renters is saving for a deposit and then maintaining the property. There are many people renting who aren't on housing benefit but who can't afford to buy. The reality is that right to buy, as initiated by Margaret Thatcher, has directly led to the current problems we have today with a lack of social housing. If more homes were built for social rent, this would reduce market rents and might allow young people onto the property ladder. Of course, the government's proposal includes a commitment to build a new property for every single one sold. But simple economics says that can't happen if you're selling a home at a discount the income gained isn't going to be sufficient to build a new one. Another problem is the planning system, which currently allows developers to sit on land and then build when prices are high. Often planning permission is sought and gained, but the houses aren't built. Instead, the developer simply renews the permission at intervals, waiting until the prices are deemed high enough to actually build. The solution is for more social rent housing to be built with government incentives, and then this will force private rental down and rents might become truly affordable. Government could enable funding models that would encourage the building of social homes and move away from grants as the only solution. This would enable housing delivery vehicles, charities, Homes England and registered providers to build. If right-to-buy proposals do proceed, then the government needs to increase the qualification period for right-to-buy on new homes, thus giving councils and housing associations greater certainty over build costs. Implement a social rent covenant, meaning all sold right-to-buy homes rented in the future are rented at social rent levels. 
Failure to do any of these things will impact some of the poorest households by reducing the overall number of socially rented homes. Now this is from the Reverend Richard Stainer from Bradfield. Steve Britt is quite right. Not a phrase I thought I'd ever use. At least one of your paper's regular letter writers did not like his article on overseas aid, which was in the Berry Free Press June the 10th, under the heading Soft Power Has Had Its Day, It's Time to Slash Overseas Aid. I don't think the giving of aid is about soft power or guilt, but simply about doing what is right. It is about relieving poverty in some of the poorest countries of the world. It is about helping those in dire need following drought, flood or other disasters. It is about loving our neighbour. We have a moral duty as the fifth or sixth richest nation in the world to help those who are struggling. We can afford to do so without impoverishing the majority of our people any further. If we, chose, if we choose to develop a fairer tax system, which takes more from the wealthy. Foreign aid means that children receive a better education. Women receive family planning advice and resources. Help can be given to new businesses to start up, and those suffering from disasters get the relief they need. Trade could well be a means of lifting countries out of poverty, but as we all know, power lies in the hands of the richest nations. They do not enter into deals that work against their own interests. The poorest always lose out. That is why we have fair trade and trade justice movements in this country. Is all aid money spent wisely? Does none of it end up in the hands of corrupt businessmen and politicians? Of course not, just as some of our tax money is frittered away by government on useless PPE or on ineffective military equipment by the Ministry of Defence, to name but two cases costing us billions of pounds. But that is no reason to deny aid to those who most need it. It is a case for proper control and regulation, anathema, I suspect, to libertarians like Mr Britt. People in the UK are not impoverished by overseas aid. They are impoverished by the wealthy who take an increasingly large slice of the cake. Executive pay has rocketed in recent years. In 2019, on average, an executive in the top 100 FTSE companies received a payout 119 times greater than the average worker. Companies have also paid out large dividends to their shareholders, but wages have stayed low. That is why there are increasing threats of industrial action. The 22% of the people in this country who live in poverty are not doing so because of overseas aid, but because of the growing inequality in our society, as the rich get richer at the expense of the poor. The government cut in overseas aid from 0.7% of GDP to 0.5% has had devastating effects around the world. Three effects have been that many more children have lost out on an education, there are fewer people being immunised against serious diseases and women have less access to family planning. The cut has been disastrous for the poor in many countries. I don't believe that Mr Britt lacks compassion, but I do believe that his adherence to a political ideology that puts the self above all else is blinding him to the devastating effects that would result. Our country is the twentieth century sorry, in the twentieth century, had a proud record of helping others at home and abroad because it was right to do so. We seem to have become more selfish and more unequal in recent years. My prayer is that we will turn away from political ideologies and simply look at the best way we can raise people out of poverty, whether here, in the UK or abroad. Here's two letters on a similar theme. Boris Johnson's confidence vote on the anniversary of D-Day was a win, but at some personal cost, with a third of the Conservative Parliamentary Party voting against his authority. Operation Big Dog was not an overall success, not for the Prime Minister or for those loyal supporters in the country, bringing no guarantee of safety, only a Pyrrhic victory. 
The prospect of the blonde bombshell being replaced by the lacklustre deputy Dominic Raab fills everyone, including non-Tories, with a mortal dread of the horrors to come. Changing Mr Personality, brackets with flaws, for an individual with absolutely no personality at all, is a recipe for disaster at the next general election. Remember, divided parties do not win elections, and it would appear that the Britain's oldest political party is about to discover this harsh fact. Exposed in the full glare of disapproval from an electorate short-changed by a Prime Minister who still believes wrongdoing isn't really that important. It's disappointing that Boris Johnson has let so many people down, but values such as integrity and honesty really do matter in all political parties. And that's from Jim Mitchell. And the second is, how profoundly disappointing, though unsurprising, to learn that our MP, Joe Churchill, endorses our Prime Minister's refusal to resign following his appalling behaviour over Partygate events. And that is from Keith Turner. And I have two letters on not dissimilar topic. Boris Johnson has asked for a line to be drawn under Partygate so that we can all move forward. I assume that when he made this request, he was speaking to the members of the Parliamentary Conservative Party after the vote of confidence, for I feel that he cannot be speaking to the public at large. Such a request made to his colleagues in Parliament stands little chance of being honoured and if indeed he were making this request to the public at large, the chance of it being honoured is so vanishingly small that it simply will not happen. I, along with thousands in this country, obeyed the restrictions. My own situation was less severe than that of, many, of, of the many who could not visit or be with loved ones as they lay dying. However, we all obeyed the rules. Boris Johnson, whatever may be said by his spin doctors, did not. I doubt very much that such misdemeanours on his part will be put aside or forgotten for a very, very long time. That's from Martin Webb in Bury St Edmunds. And this one from Joe Ellen Grzub. Uh, I think that's right. It was very disappointing, though not surprising, to read of Mrs Churchill's support for the Prime Minister in the vote of confidence. I, like many other constituents I know, urged her to give a vote of no confidence. Although Mrs Churchill and I are rarely in agreement politically, I thought she had integrity and was an honourable person. Her vote of confidence put pain to that belief. No one who lives a life of integrity could possibly support a Prime Minister who continually lies to the House of Commons and continues to take no authentic responsibility for his actions and the actions of others in his circle. This is not the leader or the role model we want or need. You can't draw a line under the appalling behaviour of someone who suffers no consequences and who simply doesn't care about the people in his care. Since we can't rely on our MP to do the right thing, let's remember the ballot box when the time comes. Just back from the Sunday farmer's market in the Traverse, what a credit it is for our town and all involved. Professionally presented stalls with a wide selection for all taste. Meats, fish, vegetables, beers, wine, spirits, plants, flowers, cakes and breads, jams and honey, and a delightful selection of gifts. Something for everyone, and importantly, mobility scooter friendly. Then I went off down Abbeygate Street to be serenaded by a very accomplished trumpet player, finishing in the Abbey Gardens to enjoy the packed Nearly Festival, appealing to all ages and musical tastes. It's not a bad old town, is it? And that is from Simon Harding in Bury St Edmunds. Now this is a monthly catch-up from Bury St Edmunds rickshaw. After a hectic three weeks rickshawing around the county, carrying local heroes for the Festival of Suffolk Torch Relay, we're settling back into our usual routine of joy rides for local residents. The relay was huge fun though to cycle through gorgeous countryside and pretty villages while meeting so many cheerful people was a real privilege. When we got to the coast, being beside the sea made quite a change for Ricky Rickshaw, 
During the trip, we also met volunteers from the rickshaw projects in Framlingham and Stowmarket, and it was good to swap notes and put faces to names of colleagues there. Here in Bury, we're working with most of the care homes in town, offering weekly rides, weather permitting. All of our regular rides were, of course, stopped during the pandemic, and we're busy picking up the threads, but the rickshaws are back at Glastonbury Court, North Court and Davis Court, as well as Marham Park Care Home, Cornwallis Court and Fornham House. At the beginning of June, it was announced that we have been given the Queen's Award for Voluntary Service, which is a great honour that we're still coming to terms with. It has strengthened our resolve to do what we can to tackle social isolation, whether by helping individuals get out into the fresh air and enjoying what the town has to offer, or by working with other organisations that have similar aims. Now we have four trishaws and strong legs from 500 or so miles on the torch relay. The BSE rickshaw volunteers are raring to go. Our rides are for people experiencing social isolation for whatever reason and are free of charge. The rickshaws take two passengers at a time so there's room for a friend or carer or one of our chatty chum volunteers. One of our bikes is designed to take a wheelchair. Our volunteer riders collect passengers from their home and return them after the ride, which can be anywhere in Bury. Most people like to visit the Abbey Gardens, but this is entirely optional. To book a ride, call 01284 339449. Care homes, day centres and other organisations can arrange for a demonstration. We will visit so that your clients can try sitting on the rickshaws and experience a short ride. Contact us again, there's that number, 01284 A boat that caught fire was one of nine RNLI call-outs in and around Suffolk in just a five-day span. Volunteers of Harwich RNLI responded to a variety of incidents from June the 16th to June the 20th, including capsized kayakers, a stranded catamaran and a vessel on fire. The first call-out happened in the River Deben, with crews launching a lifeboat to rescue a kayaker in difficulty after capsizing by the river's mouth. On Friday the 17th of June, volunteers attended a, vo a total of three incidents on the River Deben, where three kayakers were rescued after they were dragged further from land with a strong tide. Later that day, volunteers were called out again to the River Deben to help a speedboat that had run aground with five pa people on board, with the passengers being escorted ashore. On Saturday, crews were called away from the Festival of the Sea in Harwich, where 80 boats were taking part in a flotilla, to ensure the safety of spectators making their way off Stone Pier, after being caught out by the rising tide. Then, after 5pm, a reported fire aboard a boat off the coast of Felixstowe saw two lifeboats launched, but the fire had been extinguished by the time help arrived. Three more incidents happened on Monday, with the first call-out being an 18-metre catamaran losing both its rudders about 16 miles east of Walton-on-the-Naze, with volunteers helping to tow the vessel to safety. In the evening, crews investigated reports of a sailing vessel taking on water and a motorboat in the Deben breaking down with its anchor failing to hold. Peter Bull, lifeboat operations manager, said, I'm so proud of how the whole team has come together to ensure that they and the lifeboats were always ready to answer a call throughout such a period of high demand for the charity. I can't stress enough the importance of wearing a suitable life jacket for your chosen water-based activities. We don't think twice about putting on a seatbelt in our cars. I would like to see putting on a lifeboat, a life jacket, become second nature too. And there's a short piece about an archive of signed albums and rare recordings which belonged to the DJ John Peel being sold for thousands of pounds at an auction. 200 items were sold during the auction held by Bonhams and a total of 465,784 was reached. The highest bid was for Sex Pistols test pressings of the hit song Anarchy in the UK with the B-side I Wanna Be Me. 
Recorded in 1976, the rare recording sold for £20,400 after being estimated at 8000 And strangely enough, John Peel's name comes into my next piece. Stowmarket Food and Drink Festival makes its return after a two-year absence to celebrate local and regional produce. Visitors to the event on Sunday 3rd of July will find a wide range of food and drink to choose from, including produce stalls, street food, pop-up bars and sweet treats. The town centre will be packed with local and regional traders offering goods from burgers to vegan donuts. Soak up the atmosphere in the marketplace and enjoy the live music from talented musicians hand-picked by the John Peel Centre. Watch award-winning local chefs, including Sam Sturman, chef-patron at the Brewers Inn in Rattleston, prepare mouth-watering dishes with seasonal ingredients at the Kitchen Theatre in the John Peel Centre. Red Gables will be celebrating their 25th year anniversary with a barbecue, live music and charity stalls, and children's activities will take place on the lawn, including hula-hooping sessions and a mischievous clown. Children can also learn about 17th century cooking, have their face painted and much more. The day coincides with the final day of the Food Museum's annual Beer and Brewing Festival, so make sure you pop by to sample the wide selection of beer, ale and cider on offer. Children can also learn the art of campfire making and bread making at the museum throughout the day. Sessions must be booked in advance by calling 01449 612 060. Finally, as part of the festival, the Regal will be screening food-themed pocket money movies Ratatouille and Cloudy with a chance of meatballs and the library will be hosting children's crafts. Now we have a column by Camille Berriman on the Very Free Press. And she's remembering feeling like a dinosaur on discovering young colleagues had never seen the first Top Gun movie. Her daughter Clara, her latest line of bedtime questioning, only serves to make me feel even more ancient, she says, were that possible. Her topic? What did you have in the 1980s when you were young? Previous queries have included, did you have cars, did you have houses, and did you go to school? Tuesday's bedtime conversation was the best yet, and went something like this. Clara, did you have ovens in the 1980s? Me, yes. Clara, did you have phones? Me, yes, but we didn't have mobile phones. A pause. Clara, oh, I get it, so you only had phones like nannies and phones in boxes. Me, that's right. A longer pause. Clara, Mum, after school tomorrow, can we go on a trip? Can we go into town, get lost and then find a phone in a box and call someone for help? As far as trips go, this sounds like a relatively cheap and easy one, though first I have to find a phone box which hasn't been converted to a defibrillator or a community library. I am reliably informed a working one still exists outside Crowsdale's. Secondly, we will no doubt need to go in armed with a debit card rather than a ten-pence piece, which would have covered the cost of a phone call back in the 80s. A lavender jeweller and goldsmith was commissioned to design a brooch for the Queen to mark the Platinum Jubilee. A year ago, Jonathan Lambert Limited was contacted by the Masonic Grand Lodge of England, which wanted to give the brooch as a gift. The piece, set with 104 diamonds, is modelled after the insignia of a Masonic Lodge Prince Philip belonged to. The Duke of Kent presented it to the Queen during last week's Trooping of the Colour Ceremony. And this is about a concert being directed by Jill Gain, who is the chair of News Talk. The Edmund Octet was formed in the town in 2008, with Jill Gain, its music director, since 2009. During her 13 years with the Baton, the Octet has grown to 14 members, but more importantly, has raised thousands of pounds for a variety of charities. At 3pm on Sunday, July the 3rd, at Ickworth Church, a farewell concert for Jill will take place as she will be retiring. There will be a varied selection of music, including John Ireland's Sea Fever, 
the Beatles, Electric Light Orchestra, the Commodores, as well as numbers that have proved popular with the octet's audiences over the years. The concert is £10 per person with tickets available on the door. Now, before I read this fairly lengthy uh, article, I have an editor's note. And she's written, I heard about this about a fortnight ago when we had a supply problem with mains gas from the road to the house. The engineer said that pipes were going to be replaced, stroke upgraded, in order to supply domestic use hydrogen. My husband says, do you remember town gas, which was mainly hydrogen, and the conversion to natural gas in 1968 to 1976, and now we're converting back to hydrogen. However, it's not going to come from coal, so, so much cleaner. Now the article says, East Anglia could be set to play a major role in the rollout of hydrogen technology in the UK as the country looks to clean energy alternatives, according to a new regional body. Hydrogen East has unveiled a plan for the region to host a first-of-its-kind hydrogen cluster, bringing core electrolyzer projects together, says Hydrogen East, which is focused on bringing those interested in the technology together. It says Norfolk and Suffolk in particular can play a big part in bringing clean hydrogen to the fore. Hydrogen is seen, among other things, as a potential successor to carbon-emitting natural gas, which provides much of the UK's heating and cooking energy. The East is a forerunner in the race to net zero, with its hydrogen capabilities already being spoken about in Westminster, it said. Waverney MP Peter Aldous set out a vision for a future hydrogen economy in a speech in the House of Parliament on June 14th. In it, he called for a sufficiently flexible framework to enable smaller-scale projects in areas such as the east of England to be able to realise their full potential. In East Anglia, we have a real opportunity to be a major producer, user and exporter of hydrogen. We have an abundance of resources, infrastructure, both on land and at sea, that can be readily retrofitted and developers keen to step up to the plate provided that the right policies are in place. That way, we can not only more readily realise our decarbonisation goals, but create new and exciting jobs for local people, he said. The region is already home to other low-carbon energy technologies, including offshore wind farms owned by energy giants Scottish Power Renewables and Vattenfall. A new nuclear plant, Sizewell C, is also planned for the Suffolk coast. Hydrogen East says it wants to lead to the development of a clean hydrogen cluster in the east of England with a proposal for six core electrolyzer sites across Norfolk and Suffolk. This would pave the way for developing and improving infrastructure as the demand for clean hydrogen grows. Nigel Cornwall, director for Hydrogen East, said, Hydrogen is such a versatile element, and with the ability to be deployed across a variety of sectors, we should be looking to it as a powerful tool that can aid us in the transition to net zero. It should be considered as a complement to electrification and increased rollout of the renewable generation. Already a number of demonstrator projects are ongoing around the country, testing hydrogen for heat, power and transport in regions such as Aberdeen and Teesside. Here in the east, we need to establish our hydrogen pathway in a way that aligns with its distinct characteristics, including pathways into nuclear power, offshore wind and major energy hubs like Bacton. Hydrogen East General Manager Andy Holyland said the east of England had always been a key contributor in delivering the nation's energy requirements and the integration of hydrogen will only further bolster this position. Through the clean hydrogen cluster, the hydrogen economy could be scaled and grown over time to maximise potential and build bespoke energy networks. Through the development of a hydrogen cluster, we can create touch points with a variety of different sectors, supply chains and organisation types, ensuring the East of England leads the way 
and doesn't accept the prospect of being an adopter of second or third generation technology and assets. Now I've been handled, handed a challenge. I have in front of me a photograph and um, the editors asked me to describe the photograph to you and see if you can work out what it is. Well, I'll tell you to begin with. It, it has uh, four children in it and each child is holding two small puppies, uh, guide dog puppies, I suspect. Uh, there are two boys and two girls. I've worked that out by the fact that two girls uh, are wearing skirts and two boys are wearing uh, dark trousers. Uh, they're all wearing jerseys, but only two of them, one boy, one girl, is wearing a school tie. This is in close-up, so you can see their faces very clearly. Uh, different hairstyles. My goodness, the one on the left, the boy hair combed all over his forehead and down over his ears. Next to him, a girl with, hmm, I would think, an Afro hairstyle. Uh, then there's a girl with long, what I would call um, correctly styled hair for a girl. And finally, a boy also with hair down over his forehead and over his ears. Um, they're standing in front of a hedge. Uh, have you got the picture? And this is a short piece about, there was a story uh, that got quite a lot of traction about an Abraham Lincoln lookalike who visited Berrytown or is going to visit Berrytown Centre as part of Berry St Edmunds Independence Day, flagging up the independent businesses and small businesses in the town. And Alan Field was among a number of people who said, George Washington will be rolling in his grave at Abe Lincoln getting the credit for independence... Now, this is quite a long article about five truly exceptional people awarded the Suffolk Medal. Award recipients from Suffolk spoke of being overwhelmed at being honoured for their outstanding contributions in their various fields of work as part of celebrations for Suffolk Day. An internationally renowned artist and a breeder of the famous Suffolk Punch Horse were among five truly exceptional people to receive the county's highest honour at a ceremony at Framlingham Castle. Maggie Hambling, CBE, who is famous for her scallop artwork on Alborough Beach, and punch breeder Nigel Oakley were joined by volunteer Boshar Ali, businessman James Buckle, and orthopaedic surgeon Dame Claire Marks in receiving the Suffolk Medal. The honour was launched in March 2019 to champion the exceptional contributions of people in Suffolk and nominations are made by the general public and decided upon by a panel of county leaders. The Lord Lieutenant of Suffolk, Clare, Countess of Euston, presented the medals which were designed by Maggie Hambling. She said, we are honouring people who have made an enormous difference, not just to the county, but also the wider world. It is a great honour for me to present this medal to these very worthy recipients. Before the presentations began, students from Framlingham's Thomas Mills High School read out the Suffolk Day proclamation, celebrating the county and some of its famous residents. Mr Ali was recognised for his work building community cohesion and addressing the needs of thousands of people in Suffolk, regardless of their faith or ethnic origin, as secretary of the Shah Jahal Mosque and Islamic Centre in Ipswich. Upon receiving his award, he said, Actually, I don't know what to say. As you know, I have been doing it for quite a long time, but I didn't think I had done enough to deserve this prestigious award. I am overwhelmed and so grateful to everybody who has supported me over the last 30 years. He added it made a lot of difference to know that your work was acknowledged. Mr Buckle, who is a farmer and philanthropist, was honoured for his work as chairman of Suffolk Community Foundation, which supports thousands of projects being delivered by the county's charities and community groups. He said he was incredibly embarrassed to receive the investiture, adding, 
You spend your life fiddling around and trying to make things better, and you hope that it is making things better. So to receive one of these awards gives you encouragement to think that maybe it is making things better. Maggie was recognised as an artist, campaigner and philanthropist and joked in her acceptance speech that it was very nice to have the award back again. <laughs> she also reflected on some of the controversy surrounding the scallop artwork which was initially criticised by a national newspaper, The Daily Telegraph, but now receives more positive reviews as one of the main things to be done. She also sparked laughter among the gathered crowd by reflecting on the different uses for the installation, which included eating fish and chips in it. On it, on it, on it, sorry, not in it, on it. It is very user-friendly, she quipped. Dame Clare, a former medical leader at Ipswich Hospital, received the award for her work mentoring and inspiring young people to join the medical profession. She said it has been such a privilege to have worked and lived in Suffolk all these years, and today is a particularly joyous day. Mr Oakley's lifelong passion has been to fight for the survival of the Suffolk punch breed, starting from a small holding at Withersfield before moving to Reed Hall Farm Park at Bury St Edmunds, where he increased his stock to 16 and produced a further 59 foals. He said his family came first, but the Suffolk horse came second, and he reflected on the wonderful life he had with the horses and how privileged he was to live in the, in the county. It is a wonderful day for the county. There is a lot to be said for the people of Suffolk, and, God willing, there will be many more of these days to come, he added. This is Ambitions are outlined for the future of town markets. Increasing customer numbers, more special events and plans to become financially self-sufficient are ambitions voiced by a task group on West Suffolk markets. West Suffolk Council formed a task group last summer to assess future developments of the district's Styx markets as well as any opportunities and improvements that can be made. The authority operates regular markets in Brandon, Bury St Edmunds, Clare, Haverhill, Mildenhall and Newmarket, as well as special events such as those at Christmas. The task group published its recommendations ahead of the scrutiny committee meeting. Among its ambitions are to attract new customers by bolstering its promotion of the markets, developing a plan that will include measures to encourage new traders, improve footfall with more special event markets, review licensing and charging arrangements for stores, and consider alternative funding arrangements to make the markets financially self-sustaining in the next three years. Councillor John Burns, the independent councillor for Haverhill East, who chaired the Market Review Working Group, said, From our work, it is clear markets play an important role in the local economy and are a focal point for our communities, influencing the health and well-being of residents and the people that use them. Overview and Scrutiny has looked at how we can build on the successes we have had and, importantly, further strengthen them. We're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal from whose pages most of our items have been taken. Telephone numbers mentioned in this edition are the Berry Rickshaws 01284 339449 and the Stowmarket Festival 01449 612060. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Claire, Sue, Christian and Neil, it's goodbye. goodbye.
You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.